Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Judges. Judges chapter 2. We're looking at verses 6 through 10 this morning. In fact, we'll really just picking up where we left off last week, which is an introduction to Judges, but we'll be reading this passage. And I know that maybe that comes as a surprise to some of you. Many pastors have carefully selected their text to fit the occasion of Mother's Day. And our general pattern is to preach through the next passage. Um, we, we pick up where we leave off and we, we continue on. Um, and so whereas many pastors are, are going to be talking a lot about how, how great our mothers are, and there would be a lot of value in that, um, I'm going to talk about the pattern of failure that pervades the book of Judges. Um, and you might say, well, how is that very relevant on Mother's Day? And yet it's absolutely relevant, right? I mean, every mother present this morning, including the rest of us, know the feeling of failure. In fact, for many, it's a debilitating feeling. And so here's the message of judges. You are not okay. You're not okay as you are. But... You have a gracious God who says, come as you are. You are not okay, but you have a gracious God who says, come as you are. So last week we spent a lot of time looking at the structure of judges and and the importance and value of understanding where where you are in the book, right? What what the structure, it's an important um, focus upon the emphasis of the different characters of the judges, of the cycle of, that the judges go through, um, which we talked about. It's not just a typical cycle where you see the same pattern happening over and over again with different characters. Instead, it's more like a downward spiral because each successive judge, it seems like the Israelites are getting worse and worse. They're getting progressively worse in their relationship with God. And so that's what we're going to spend most of our time focusing on here is is this theme of of failure and the many forms that it takes in this book. But there's hope even in that, because those who are most keenly aware of their failures are most prepared to receive God's grace. If you you really, really want to understand the gospel. And for it to have an impact into your heart and life, it begins by a clear grasp of your failures. A recognition and a repentance of your failures. So those who are keenly aware of their failures are most prepared to receive God's grace. So before we read this passage, let's ask the Lord for his help and understanding. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time to look at this important book and its place in redemptive history. We do see a lot of negativity in terms of the people of Israel and their, and their worship and their walk with you, which ultimately looked like a lot of rebellion and chaos. And it's not all that dissimilar to our day and age. 
what, what, what passes for the church today is oftentimes chaos and rebellion against your word and your revelation. So convince us of that from your word today. And may we be changed by this truth. We recognize that it, we depend upon your spirit to do that. And so we ask you to give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, soften our hearts to this truth that we might be conformed into the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, from one degree of glory to the next. Do that work for your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Read with me Judges chapter 2, verses 6 through 10. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath-Herez, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, there's three different phrases that we see uh, that we're going to look at this morning. And we see them over and over again. And it depicts this failure. We'll see the political and the military failure. We'll see their religious and their moral failure. And we'll also see leadership failure. And we'll look at the different phrases that we come across over and over. This first one, this political or military failure, is depicted by the constant refrain in chapter 1, which we did not read. But look back with me at chapter 1, starting there in verse 21. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. The people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. Look at verse 27. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Sheen and its villages or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, and on and on. Verse 29, And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites. Verse 30, Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron. 31, Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Atho. And 33, Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of So you see that phrase, did not drive out the inhabitants of this tribe, did not drive out the inhabitants of these people. And so throughout this introduction, this opening chapter, you see that many nations in the promised land were left unconquered. Right. In the book of Joshua, we see them entering into the promised land and and taking over the land, giving taking possession of the land. And yet here we read over and over again that they did not drive out the inhabitants of the land. And so despite the early successes, especially where the Lord was explicitly with them, both uh, the southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin, um, in verses 1 through 21, you see a lot of success there. But Benjamin is the first one that we read of 
where there's a failure. And then you also see in all of these northern tribes, increasing failure to complete the conquest. And really, throughout the book of Judges, it will only go downhill so that by the end we'll see civil war. Instead of driving out the Canaanites, they're now driving out Benjamin, one of their own tribes. And so here's some of the challenges we face as we read this. The question is, does Judges contradict Joshua? It seems like as you're reading Joshua, there's a lot of success. And then as you come to Judges, there's a lot of failure. Is the conquest, though, completely successful under Joshua? That's the question. And then on a closer reading of the book of Joshua, we find that that's not the case. So go back to chapter 13 of Joshua. Just the previous book, several chapters back, chapter 13. And we'll look at a few chapters or a few references in Joshua to get the impression that the job was not complete. Joshua chapter 13, verse 1. Now Joshua was old and advanced in years, and the Lord said to him, You are old and advanced in years, and there remains yet very much land to possess. There remains very much land to possess. Right there at the end of Joshua's life, or nearing the end of Joshua's life, and, and, and God's saying, there's still a lot of land to possess. So what he does now is he says, Give the allotments of the inheritance for each tribe. Put those tribes in their land and let each tribe now finish the work. Right? So the task was not done in Joshua. Go to chapter 15, verse 63, also of Joshua. So just a few chapters later. Chapter 15, verse 63. But the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah, did not drive out. So the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. Chapter 16, verse 10. However, they did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites have lived in the midst of Ephraim to this day, but have been made to do forced labor. 17, 12, and 13. We'll just look at this as the last one. Yet the people of Manasseh could not take possession of these of those cities, but the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. Now, when the people of Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not utterly drive them out. Okay, so over and over, you see that same kind of language in Joshua. They had taken possession of the land in the sense that they are the main occupants. But there's still many inhabitants that need to be driven out. The work has not been completed in Joshua. There's also another challenge from this chapter. Because in chapter 1 of Judges, verse 8, you read this, And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. But then in verse 21, as we read, But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. And that's consistent with what we read in Joshua. What's happening is Jerusalem is right there on the border of two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. So Judah had come in and done their part. Benjamin had come in and failed. And so there was still many inhabitants 
in the city of Jerusalem who needed to be driven out, the Jebusites, right? And they continued to remain. They were not driven out at this point, at least. There's also a few mentions here in chapter 1 of Judges about Deber and Hebron. And if you read carefully in Joshua, you see that those cities were cities that had been captured. And here it seems like they're being captured again. But again, a careful reading of Joshua and Judges points out the, or clarifies this discrepancy because in Joshua 15, you have almost an identical quote, word for word, of Othniel here in verses 11 through 15 of chapter 1. So you could take that paragraph of Judges 1, verses 11 through 15, and you could put it alongside Joshua 15, 15 through 19, and you'd be hard-pressed to find any difference between them. Um, the point is, this is a flashback. Right? They're fla- he's flashing back to that capture of those lands. And as I mentioned last week, we know jo- Judges is not, a, is not a strictly chronological outline. And it's hard for us to, to read anything that's not chronologically ordered. But, but Judges is not meant to be chronological. He takes the tribes and he looks at them from, from location, from geographic, right, where they are on the map. So Judah and Benjamin, he starts with and he says they went up and they conquered their territory. And then the northern tribes come down and they conquer their territories. That's not necessarily how it happened chronologically. Okay? They all come into the land and they possess it at various times and it's overlapping. And, and you know, there's not a precise chronological order there. But honestly... The biggest challenge we have when we look at something like this, whether it's Joshua or the book of Judges, is the idea that God has called them to eradicate entire nations from the land in which they dwell. Right? This is, there's a word for this. It's called harem. And it's translated in chapter 1, verse 17, as devoted to destruction. Chapter 1, verse 17, And Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath and devoted it to destruction. That's not a pleasant term. And it's difficult. And it's challenging. Understanding the ethics of the conquest is, is a burden for the Christian. And it's something that we need to wrestle with here. And unfortunately, we don't have the time to really do, spend a lot of time here. But go back to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Your fifth book of the Bible, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. 
You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their asherim and burn their carved images with fire. So Deuteronomy chapter 7 verses 1 through 5 is pretty clear about what devoting to destruction means. It means eliminate everything that has to do with that nation from the land. Don't be tempted by any of it. Eliminate all people. I'd have no mercy, in fact. And so the conquest, to understand it, we need to really see three things. First of all, this was a carrying out of the Lord's justice. This is the Lord's justice on full, unvarnished display. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 16, we get a hint, kind of one of the first hints that this would be necessary. Um, We read that the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So he's talking about the Amorites and their wickedness, but he says their wickedness is not yet complete. You're going to have to come back in a later generation in order to eliminate the Amorites. But I don't want you to do it yet. So God's justice, in order to be satisfied, required this kind of judgment to take place. And again, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 9 through 14, we read this. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations, There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. These are descriptions of the kinds of religious sacrifice that's taking place among the Canaanites. The burning of their sons and daughters. So you're to avoid that, Israel. That's not to describe your worship of me. He goes on to say, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God for these nations which you are about to dispossess Listen to, uh, they listen to fortune tellers and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. Okay, so in order to protect Israel, God is going to drive out these abominations. These people who practice and worship in abominable ways. Right? So this is God carrying out his justice upon mankind. Secondly, it protects the Israelites from Canaanite influence, right? If you let them remain in the land, you will be tempted by them. You'll be tempted to be just like them, to adopt their gods, and we'll see that in the very next um, section. We'll see that that's what happens to Israel. So if you want to protect yourself and your purity in the way you worship God, then you'll need to finish 
the conquest. You'll need to drive out these inhabitants. Thirdly, it fulfills the patriarchal promises concerning the land. Right? In order to possess the land, it had to be free from other inhabitants. And so for God to fulfill his promise, he brings them into the land and he uses them to dispossess the land of these other nations. All right, that's all I'm going to spend time looking at this challenge. It definitely requires more thought and more study. And, I, and, I, and I'm sure this doesn't settle it in your mind. But I would encourage you to listen to a message Derek Thomas preached at the Legionnaire Conference in 2010. It's called, If God is Good, How Can He Command Holy War? If God is Good, How Can He Command Holy War? It will be in the notes on the website, um, but it's a sermon on Joshua 6, uh, technically a conference message he preached, and it's really helpful in understanding um, the conquest. But really, there's a greater concern than their military and their political failures. And the greater concern is their religious and moral failure. And that's what we see described in chapter 3, verse 7. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Another phrase we're going to find over and over and over again. Every judge, that's one of the opening sentences of the cycle. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Verse 12 of chapter 3, and the people of Israel did, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 1, and the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Chapter 6, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. We don't need to keep going, but you get the picture. Every time a new judge comes up, it's because the people of Israel have departed from worshiping the Lord. They, they failed military, their, their military failed to drive out the inhabitants, and now we're seeing the consequences. That God already said would happen if you leave them in the land. That you will begin to turn away. You're, you'll begin to do what's evil in the sight of the Lord. And, and this is in terms of their worship, primarily. It's in terms of how they are now adopting other gods. Right? They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. That's the rest of verse 7. So the spiritual and the moral decay of the Israelites are portrayed throughout Judges. It is the theme of Judges. And it's, again, I said, likened to a downward spiral of the nation because it progressively gets worse and worse. In fact, there's excavations that have been done in the land near high places, um, which was typically associated with cults. Um, they, they had high, they've excavated these high places and found a bull of bronze, which was inscribed to God El, which would have been an Israelite idol, basically. They, they, this, you know, so archaeology continues to confirm what scripture has already declared. And it's interesting that as we read through this, it's not that the Israelites were becoming less religious. They didn't, they didn't just stop worshiping. But in fact, they became more religious. They added more gods to the group in which they worshiped. They multiplied gods. And they turn away from the one true and living God 
by honoring the fertility gods and goddesses of the Canaanite nations, the Baal, the Asherah, the Ashtaroth, the Asherim. They take these gods and they begin to form them and set them up on high places and worship them just like the nations. Their downfall was thinking that they could honor God alongside the gods of their neighbors. That they could work out some kind of treaty among them. Right? We'll, we'll serve your gods, you serve our God, we'll all just kind of be a happy family. We'll inhabit the land together. In other words, it was syncretism. It was trying to merge together two incompatible religious systems. And they would fail, just like every nation failed before them and everyone failed after them to practice syncretism. Syncretism ultimately is this. It's worship without regard for God's word. And so that opens the door wide open, doesn't it? We don't have to have a bail up here for us to be syncretistic in our worship. And we don't all have to be syncretistic at the same time. We simply have to come and decide on our own how I want to worship God. So if I want to worship him in this way and you want to worship him in another way, it's fine with me. As long as I get what I want. Worship without regard for God's revelation. And I think Satan's subtlest trick is to convince us that we're okay doing that. That you're okay doing just whatever you want. You really don't need anything. Right? So if you want to attend church, do it. If it helps. If you want to watch sports, do it if you enjoy them. If you want to read scripture, go ahead if you have the time. If you want to binge on Netflix, have at it. Do whatever you want, whenever you want. It doesn't matter. Decide when and how you want to worship God. That's syncretism. That's combining a world that is secular, that is consumeristic, that says it's all about me with the worship of God, who says the opposite, that you're not okay and that it's not about you. So Judges teaches us that you don't have to stop believing in God to fall under his condemnation. You don't have to stop believing in God. Any one of these Israelites would have said, oh yeah, no, 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 we we still believe in Yahweh. Yeah, we still worship him, in fact. We honor him. We just also honor Baal. And, you know, we want our crops to succeed, so we pray and we set up these Asherah poles and we bow down to them. You don't have to stop believing in order to fall under condemnation. Simply worshiping him however you want will bring judgment. And that leaves us with one more failure to consider. This leadership failure. And it's a phrase that comes at the end of Judges four different times. In Judges chapter 17, verse 6. We read, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. 
Chapter 18, verse 1, in those days there was no king in Israel. Chapter 19, verse 1, in those days there was no king in Israel. And finally, in chapter 21, verse 25, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So you have the fuller phrase, everyone did what was right in his own eyes, in the the opening and the end. In In the middle, you have two examples of it, just saying, in those days there was no king in Israel. In other words, they had no leadership. It was chaos. It was rebellion. And that's the conclusion. It's utter chaos. They no longer started fighting with their neighbors. They're now fighting with one another. They, they're no longer um, worshiping God in the way that he prescribed. They're worshiping every kind of idol that they could manufacture. Not only are they worshiping their, their neighbor's idols, they begin to create their own at this point as we saw in chapter 17. They begin to form their own carvings and say, this is the God we'll worship. They become worse than their neighbors. Right? And so it reflects a need at this point for anointed leadership. It sums up the end of one phase of redemptive history where they were uh, led by judges and by redeemers that God had brought to them to a need for a king. Israel had ultimately failed to serve God as king. And we'll see that in Judges chapter 8 as well. Uh, Verses 22 and 23. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. That was the intention here. God had given the judges to rescue them so that they could then come back into the land enjoy the promised land, and be ruled by their king and sovereign God. But they failed to do that. So God's covenant faithfulness involves justice, and it also involves mercy. There are consequences for abominable practices, but there's also grace. And one of the questions we'll face throughout as we read is is whether or not the judges themselves have contributed to this failure. Are the judges following along in this same pattern? And many today do see the judges following that progressive deterioration. So they're, they're sort of leading the charge in this downward spiral, bringing the nation down with them. So you have Othniel as being this paradigmatic judge who's, who's perfect, at least by the description of him. And then you have him followed by judges that get progressively more and more morally corrupt. So you'd have Gideon, who'd have a lot of question marks. Then you'd have Jephthah, who they say is comes from, um, from questionable uh, background, and he then devotes his, his daughter uh, to the to the Lord in a sacrifice of her, putting her to death, just like the um, other nations would have done. That's at least if you follow this belief. You follow this idea that the judges themselves are leading the downward spiral. And then you have Samson in the end, who's the worst of all, who's the most corrupt. <clears throat> they would also argue that the women follow this same pattern, that like you begin with a, a wonderful example of Oxa in chapter 1, but then it comes, then comes into the picture Delilah, who's 
leading Samson away from God. And you have even an unnamed concubine in the conclusion. Judges chapter 19. There's some problems with this, though. right? Because there's other women, such as Deborah, Jael. There's a certain woman who kills Abimelech. There's Jephthah's daughter. All of them seem to be described as innocent, good, moral examples. And they're interspersed between these other women. And I think you would have the same problem if you look closely at the judges. I think we have, a, we have gone too far to be critical. Some of the commentaries, at least that I've read, have gone so far to be very critical of the judges that they miss the point. And the earliest interpretations were mostly positive. Uh, in the second century B.C., the apocryphal book Ecclesiasticus, which is not inspired, not the inspired word of God, but it's a helpful commentary. And in, verse, in, in one of the verses, it says this, the judges also whose hearts did not fall into idolatry and who did not turn away from the Lord, may their memory be blessed. And so, very positive outlook upon the judges. While the nation is clearly in decline, the judges did not depart from the Lord. And if it weren't for the judges, they would have been lost altogether. God raised up these judges to protect them. In fact, a contemporary of Jesus, Josephus, wrote also mostly positive accounts of the judges, reflecting upon them in a positive way. He does acknowledge some significant failures as well. And that's what I want to try to do as we work our way through the book, that I want to have something of a a proper balance, hopefully a biblical balance, of these judges. When you get to the New Testament, it only contains a handful of references to judges or allusions to judges, but every single one of them is positive. So if you read the book of Judges and you're almost always criticizing what's taking place, what the judges are doing, then I have a feeling you're reading it different than any of the New Testament authors who are always positive. And Hebrews 11.32 is the most important reference because we read this. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel. So you have four judges there listed, Barak being the um, contemporary with Deborah in that account. But Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, all spoken of in this passage. Let's keep reading. And the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refused to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though all these, notice, he's talking about all of these people that he's just mentioned. All these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us that apart from us they should not be made perfect. 
And he talks about them as being a great cloud of witnesses to God's grace and mercy. So, Hebrews has an extremely positive outlook upon these judges. In fact, telling us to imitate these men of whom the world was not worthy. The judges, again, are shadows of Christ Jesus. Doesn't mean they're perfect. David also pointed forward to Christ and he was not perfect. Not the perfect king. But Jesus Christ is the only perfect judge and king. And God picks these who are weak, those who should not have been the ones leading this nation to overcome the strong. And that's what you see he, he did here. Uh, that, was, that was the author of Hebrews' view. Right? They, the world was not worthy of these men. But in each case, God transforms them into deliverers. Right? God uses them in a mighty way to rescue his people. And so, in conclusion, just thinking about the political and military failure, it reveals how little Israel regarded sin against God, that they would fail in such a blatant way, such an obvious way. They did not regard sin against God to be that important. They also, we see in the religious and moral failure, it reveals how quickly they turned away to false worship, how quickly they added other gods to their worship practices Right, as soon as the one holding them back, as soon as the judge died, Israel plunged deeper into rebellion and chaos. And, and it's not until God sends another nation to begin to judge them that they cry out to him for mercy and deliverance. And again, time and time again, God delivers them. They come to him in their rebellion and chaos and they cry out and they receive Mercy. And then we see this leadership failure reveals Israel's inability to govern themselves in the way in a way that honored the Lord. They needed a, a physical representation among them to hold them accountable. And that would come in the form of a king. And unfortunately, we haven't come all that far since then. All right, every one of these failures relates today. The message of Judges is you're not okay. But you have a gracious God who says, come as you are. And that's both humbling and relieving. Because we're not going to succeed where Israel failed. We're not going to be able to do it any better than they did. And we know it. Because we've tried. But when we place our hope in Jesus Christ... We are trusting in one who already did succeed, where they and we continue to fail. And so those keenly aware of their own failures are most prepared to receive the grace that's offered offered to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that only becomes beautiful to us if we see how depraved we truly are and how much we need a Savior. Let's pray.